0: Hello and welcome to the November issue of the Lancet Neurology Podcast. My name is Nikolai Humphreys. In a few minutes we'll be hearing from Chris Pullman, an author of a rapid review on oral treatment for multiple sclerosis. But first, I'm joined by my colleague and acting editor of the Lancet Neurology, Elena Becca Barrasso. Elena, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Nikolai.
0: Lots of content in this month's issue. Is there anything you'd like to highlight?
1: The original research section of the November issue includes three very interesting articles in the areas of neuroimaging of a stroke, cognition in patients with diabetes, and sudden unexplained death in epilepsy. And uh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about this one on epilepsy, Nicola, if you think it's fine. The other two papers are splendid too, but I think this one is especially important. Sudden unexplained death in epilepsy, also known as SUDEP, is about 20 times more common in people with epilepsy than in the general population. We know about some potentially preventable risk factors for SUDEP, such as a high number of generalized tonic-clonic seizures, for instance. But until now, no intervention has been assessed in a controlled study or shown a beneficial effect at preventing SUDEP. In the study that we are publishing this month, Philippe Riblin from the Neurological Hospital in Lyon, France, and his colleagues Pull data from more than 100 randomized trials of antiepileptic drugs as add-on treatment of adults with refractory epilepsy to compare the incidence of SUDEP between patients receiving adjunctive AED therapy at effective doses and those given placebo. Overall, their analysis shows that patients treated with adjunctive AEDs at effective doses are about seven times less likely to die of SUDEP than patients given placebo. The authors think that the treatment-related reduction in seizure frequency is the most likely explanation for the very low rate of SUDEP in these patients. So, contrary to previous research suggesting that polytherapy might increase the risk of SUDEP, this study suggests that add-on antiepileptic drugs at doses effective on seizure frequency reduce the risk of SUDEP, at least during the average three months duration of a randomized trial. In a comment linked to this article, Dale Herzdorfer from Columbia University in New York and Thor Ron Thompson from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm outline three key implications of these findings. And I'm going to quote here. They say First, the study provides the strongest evidence for an effective intervention to reduce suicide risk. Second, the protective effect of adjunctive therapy suggests that seizure control could be extremely important to prevention. And third, polytherapy does not increase risk of SUDEP during the time period of a randomized trial. Hence, I think this is a very important report, and I truly believe that this could become a landmark paper. Now, for the review section, a lot of variety as well. You have talked with Chris Polman on the multiple sclerosis article, so I don't think I could add much on that. But let me tell you briefly about the other three reviews in this issue. These articles are, first of all, for those with curiosity and an interest in the neuroscience, a review on the pathological roles of alpha synuclein in neurological diseases by Leonidas Stefanis and colleagues in Athens, a very hot area of research. Secondly, a review on vascular artery occlusion, covering from pathophysiology to clinical course, outcome, and management of these patients. Truly an excellent paper, a very comprehensive article by Heinrich Madel and colleagues from Bern in Switzerland. And finally, a beautiful paper which is a review on advances in imaging in Parkinson's disease, which I think is a must-read for those interested in Parkinsonism and related disorders. John Stoesel and colleagues from Canada cover a large body of literature in this area, not only PET and SPECT, but also functional MRI and novel magnetic resonance approaches. All these techniques and the rationales and their advantages and disadvantages in the clinic are explained very clearly for the non-radiologists. I think the radiologists will find plenty of food for thought here. And as I said, the non-radiologists will find a splendid and comprehensive up-to-date overview on this area.
0: Thank you for guiding us through some of the highlights in the November issue of The Lancet Neurology. Now for the main feature. Earlier this month, Richard Lane interviewed Chris Pullman to discuss a rapid review on oral treatment for multiple sclerosis
2: Professor Polman, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. You're one of the authors of a very interesting topical review in the November issue of The Lancet Neurology. And that concerns uh, oral drugs or oral therapies for multiple sclerosis. Before we go on and discuss the the review in detail, can you just bring us up to speed with where we are at the moment in terms of the situation with oral therapies for MS?
3: I think we are at a very, yeah, let's say, exciting point in time. We've had... um, first line therapies for MS now for I guess more than a decade where uh, patients uh, had to inject themselves either as subcutaneous injection or as intramuscular injection. For a couple of years now we have a second line treatment, uh, Natalizumab, where people have monthly infusions and at this point in time we are just at the time that oral treatments for MS are being introduced. In some parts of the world, they are already available. In other parts of the world, they probably will be available soon. I think for patients, it's a major step forward. There is effective disease-modifying treatments for MS now that don't have to be injected, and that can be taken just as a pill. In addition, these oral treatments also offer a couple of new mechanisms of action which potentially opens the way for them to be also effective maybe in other patients than the drugs have been shown to be effective that we use now. So it's I think the two two exciting aspects are oral administration and new mechanism of action.
2: As you say, this is an exciting area of investigation at the moment. What do you think are the main obstacles or barriers in bringing some of these oral therapies to the clinic? If so, how do we overcome those obstacles?
3: I think the obstacles are at different levels. It's in some parts of the world, I think, at this point in time, there is still an issue about cost-effectiveness and reimbursement of these drugs, which which of course is also a very important issue because these new compounds, even though they look like very simple tablets, they bring a huge cost, That's that's an obstacle. Another obstacle is how these drugs will be introduced to the patients. I think um, there is among patients somewhat perception that an oral drug can't have any side effects or something like that. Uh, MS patients have got used to injections, and I think there is somewhat of a euphoria about the fact that now the injections are not necessary anymore. And I'm not sure whether all patients at this point in time And maybe also all clinicians recognize that even though these drugs can be um, administered orally, that doesn't mean that they don't have side effects and that they don't need um, very intense monitoring sometimes for specific side effects. So I think even though I'm also very enthusiastic about these oral drugs, there might be a a, a perception of maybe a little bit of of euphoria, which which I think has to be balanced when these um, drugs are really being used. And then in addition, of course, uh, with more drugs available, it's more and more complicated to decide which patient at what point in time needs which drug, because if there's only one or two drugs, um, there's not many options. With more drugs becoming available, questions are, do we have to, uh, to start with safe medication and then maybe up titrate to more powerful medication, whereas others at the same time advocate that you should start with very powerful medication because it's most effective So there's different regimens, different management strategies that can be applied, of which we at this point don't know which is the best one. The issue of compliance is important, isn't it? Because the best
2: available therapies up until now for multiple sclerosis are injectable therapies and there is an issue with compliance there. So can oral therapies overcome this and have they been able to do that in other conditions where oral therapies have replaced
3: injectables? There have been studies in multiple sclerosis where there are indications that up to maybe one third of patients forget the injections and I think then forgetting sometimes is really forgetting but I think in many cases forgetting also means that they don't like the injection, um, that they are afraid of it, and that that it's not really forgetting, but that it's really, I, I don't want to do this. And I think also after quite a few years where patients tolerated the injectables very well, you often see patients who say, I can't tolerate this anymore, I really want to stop. So part of the compliance issue is really forgetting, and maybe a pill is as easy to forget as an injection. But part of the adherence also has to do with really patients being bothered about the problems of injections. And and I think that's true for a significant part of patients, and I assume that for those patients it will be much easier to adhere to therapy and thereby to have effective therapy, because if we prescribe uh, medications which are expensive and patients just don't use them, uh, that's really a waste of, of resources.
2: And are these new oral therapies, that is the subject of the review, are they more effective or safer or, and or safer than injectables or is it the fact that they're just more convenient to, to take?
3: With regard to efficacy or safety, there are some differences also between the different drugs that are being discussed in the review. Direct um, face-to-face comparisons regarding efficacy um, have not been done for all of the compounds that we are discussing, or uh, those results are not available. But for one of the compounds, Fingolimod, indeed, it has been shown that it's more effective than one of the approved therapies. So I think these drugs certainly have the potential to be more effective. Regarding safety, that's another issue. I think that the first-line therapies, so interferon and glatiramer, it's not easy to beat those drugs when it comes to safety, because they are so very safe that i think that that's also one of the main reasons that these drugs have been used as a standard therapy they are extremely safe and only modestly effective so i think even though the picture depends from agent to agent globally i would say the advantages of these new oral drugs are with respect to efficacy and convenience not so much safety a quick follow up to that question what's the situation with the approval of
2: these drugs in different settings because some of the oral therapies for ms have been available in some countries not in others are we seeing a, a trend towards approval of these
3: drugs for use i think we will see a trend towards approval depending on on the data i think for um, one of the drugs that we are dealing with uh, cladribine we won't see that because after some studies it has been decided that there Efficacy doesn't outweigh safety. For Fingolimod, I think we have an almost worldwide approval now with regulatory authorities, certainly with the FDA and with the EMEA in, uh, in Europe, um, but they're in some countries. And also, uh, this is true for the country where I'm uh, living, which is uh, the Netherlands, um, even though it's approved, And there is still reimbursement issues so that the health and the insurance system still is discussing for which patients this will be reimbursed, which is, of course, critically important when it comes to access to patients because of the huge price involved. So I think approval, regulator approval for Fingolimod is is worldwide or almost worldwide, which doesn't mean that it's already available um, everywhere, and this can be a very country specific situation with some countries already having easy access i understand that this is for example true in in germany and in switzerland and other countries uh, patients not having uh, easy exit yes yet at this moment
2: the arrival of several new oral therapies within a short space of time clearly is great news for for patients it's offering hope and uh, uh, but to clinicians i suppose and you you touched on this at the beginning of the interview there's a question now about which decision to make, which therapy to go for. How would you uh, respond to that? I
3: still hope that for some important questions, there will be clinical trials, so that there is a, a, a very straightforward, direct answer. I completely agree that uh, yeah, you can't have a clinical trial for every regimen. So I think another step forward, and there are some initiatives, if, is to to have... Larger databases and registries of MS patients, where different treatment strategies are being documented, so, at, so that at some point in time, you hopefully can learn from those from those registries, which sometimes don't give as clear answers as clinical trials, but on the other hand, they sometimes better reflect normal daily life. So um, I think there is some potential. For example, in uh, we have the uh, big ACTRIMS ACTRIMS meeting here in Amsterdam. Uh, starting next week. Clinicians, neurologists will come together, will discuss strategies and, and part of this can also, can only be done based on, on consensus and expert opinion. I hope of course that expert opinion at some point in time will be replaced by evidence but, but not for every question I think there will be evidence. You can't do it clinical trial for every single question
2: the field of ms patients and clinicians have been waiting for good news for you know for such a long time progress has been relatively slow hasn't it i suppose in terms of finding a really effective treatment for the disease there is a danger isn't there that uh, often news reports appear press releases are put out data are discussed at the time uh, of uh, symposia, conferences—you yeah. uh, yeah. know—the result of phase two, but before they've gone into peer-reviewed liter- literature, yeah. do you think clinicians and patients need to be quite guarded about how they interpret the sort of euphoria or good news yeah. around?
3: I think I have two answers to this question. I think that many of these studies have been have been uh, organised by companies, and those companies are large pharmaceutical companies who then have their their obligations regarding the financial markets to present data as soon as people have access to them. In my experience, these companies are are very careful with the numbers that they present because they are truth. And if they present in abstracts or in press releases, if they present wrong information, this also has consequences for them. So I think that the data in those abstracts are always right but there is another issue and that's how are these data being presented and how are these data being interpreted and i think that sometimes company press releases even though they contain the right numbers try to bring a message which is not always very clear from the numbers from the figures if it's company press releases i think the data can be trusted and the interpretation sometimes has something of let's say a wishful interpretation
2: I think that's a great way to finish the interview. So Professor Chris Polman from VU University Medical Center in Amsterdam
0: in the Netherlands, many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet Neurology. My
3: pleasure. Thank you as well.
0: And that brings another installment of the Lancet Neurology podcast to a close. My thanks to Eleanor becker Barrasso, Richard Lane and Chris Polman for contributing to the podcast and to you, the listeners, for tuning in. Take care and see you next month.